You're listening to Members of the Jury, the show that takes you straight into the trenches of justice, where the passion, players, and consequences are real. Each episode, we examine current events happening in the system. From the battles in courtrooms to the streets demanding reform, we bring those stories here to you, the members of the jury, because we aren't afraid to take it to the box. What's up, members of the jury, and welcome back to another episode. Today is a super cool Freedom Friday episode with a trial breakdown from the dreaded domestic violence world. I must warn you, if domestic violence is a trigger issue for you, this may not be the best episode for you. Today's trial breakdown is definitely going to highlight some of the issues that exist when prosecuting domestic violence type cases. Most of the time, we refer to these kind of cases as kangaroo court because you never know what's going to happen. You don't know who or is not going to show up or what or what is not going to be said. Now, by no means do myself or today's guest condone the acts of domestic violence. But every single law has a set of elements that must be proven beyond a reasonable doubt in order for a guilty verdict to be reached. And it's our job to hold the government and the police to that burden. Now, today's guest did exactly that when he took this domestic violence matter to the box. Our guest today is Deputy Public Defender Tyler, who is a fellow Freedom Fighter and one of my first mentees who I'm so incredibly proud of. So Tyler, please introduce yourself to the members of the jury. Hello, everyone. My name's Tyler, and I'm a criminal defense attorney. More specifically, I'm a public defender, which means that I'm appointed by the state to represent people that are accused of crimes. Well, Tyler, thanks for coming up, uh, coming onto the show. We're super excited to get into today's story. But before we go ahead and dive into the facts of the case, can you give us a little bit of background details as to how the case came into your lap? Of course. Uh, so this was a six count domestic violence case. It alleged strangulation uh, was the primary charge and the reason that the people went forward on this case. So client was arraigned, entered a not guilty plea, and the case was assigned to me for trial and readiness conference. Now, you mentioned that strangulation was the predominant charge. Were the rest of the charges that existed on the place just kind of lesser degree extents of that, or were they completely other charges in their entirety? No, they were just lesser degree. Um, So the leading charge was assault by means likely to produce great bodily injury and corporal injury to a spouse or significant other. And then there was also uh, an additional charge of a battery on a current or former significant other. Okay, so the charges that your client were facing were specifically related to a significant or former significant other. And in layman's terms, a boyfriend, girlfriend, or wife or husband, right? Exactly. That's why I fell in the domestic violence category. And when a crime is committed against someone that you are in a significant or formerly significant relationship with, they have specific crime or penal codes that attach to them as opposed to the general set of maybe that criminal conduct, right? Exactly. Okay. And so just to get our listeners on the same page... Who was the person in the relationship that you were representing and and who was the alleged victim? I represented the male side of the relationship. 
uh, and the complaining witness or victim was the female side of the relationship. I will say that that's not always how it is, um, but that was it for this case in this trial. Absolutely. I know anytime that I get a case where the the client is a, a female, you you first and foremost scratch your head because we know it's totally plausible. I mean, domestic violence occurs on both sides, but it's definitely outside the norm. And I always think that it plays an interesting role uh, to the members of the jury when the it's the female who is alleged to be the aggressor. So um, let's start to make our way towards the actual trial. You know, I know we were talking a little bit before we, we started recording about how a case goes to trial. And more or less, there's two reasons why. And that's one, the facts of the case are, you know, don't in line with the law and the elements and they need to be challenged. And so there's really a factual component missing. Or sometimes you and the opposing party aren't able to come to an agreement as to what count maybe should be pled to or what the sentencing should be. And so uh, on a principal purpose, you have to, to go to trial was there anything leading up to this case that, you know, led the the driving wheel to go to trial? Absolutely. Um, so this case, although it sounds very serious based on you know, the nature of the charges, the classification of domestic violence, the actual conduct that was underlying this case, in my opinion, was not that serious. Uh, I think that this case was charged heavily based on the accusations that were made from one side. Uh, but what actually happened and what came out at trial was entirely different. And so the issue and the reason that we pushed this case toward trial was uh, there was a request for a custody and what I think is a significant amount of custody. And we weren't willing to accept that. So we set trial and brought in a jury. And that's definitely part of the process. You know, if there's really not an incentive for an individual to take a plea deal, they have their absolute right to go to trial. So that's, we're glad to hear that that's what your client elected to do. So we all know that by now, hopefully, if you've been listening, that there's obviously a very specific pattern and flow that a jury trial must occur in. And one of the first uh, portions of that jury trial is what's known as the voir dire, where you get an opportunity to question the members of the jury to see on how, to see how they would gauge potentially the facts of your case. And obviously, domestic violence, as we indicated in the beginning of the episode, is definitely a tough trigger uh, issue for a lot of people, whether they personally have been victims of domestic violence or know someone that has uh, been a victim of domestic violence. How do you feel the voir dire went in this case? I think it went well. Um, it started off rough. Just like you were saying, I think everyone hears the judge read the charges or say that this is a case involving domestic violence and people kind of cringe, um, which is natural. They cringe at me. They cringe at my client. Uh, people don't like to hear it because when they hear that, I think that they associate it with clear cut violence on an innocent person and don't even consider if there may or may not be some sort of justification. And so my role in this voir dire I thought was to really get forward that we're not condoning domestic violence. By no means was I condoning that, nor was my client. But at the same time, when charges are being brought against someone, you need to go in and figure out what the circumstances were that led to that accusation. And so in this case, I talked a lot about 
uh, just like I said, domestic violence generally, to try and get people to realize if they had some sort of opinion about that, which most people do. Uh, and then also brought up the idea of self-defense and when sometimes violence can be justified, regardless of who it's against. That's, I know that's a big hurdle and interested to see if, if you had to expand on that notion with the members of the jury, especially, you know, having the male client and trying to navigate a way that's acceptable for a man to put his hands on a woman in light of it being lawful self-defense, did, did you think that there was any difficulties or hurdles in that regard? Absolutely. Um, that's where I focused a majority of my time, uh, as far as the voir dire went, on discussing the roles and the dynamics between men and women, or if it had been a man and a man or a woman and a woman. Uh, the way the law sees it, everyone is entitled to defend themselves, regardless of who it's against. But when people think about domestic violence, that's not their initial reaction in my experience. So it's hard for people to rationalize that. And what you want to do during the voir dire process is figure out who is so, uh, I guess, pre-exposed to the idea of domestic violence that they're not willing to accept that anyone can defend themselves against anyone else. Now, self-defense in and of itself, uh, has to be lawful self-defense, like you stated. Um, but it was a hard hurdle to get over. And so many people were removed for cause, meaning that they couldn't be fair and hear the evidence or facts regarding self-defense because they had already made their mind up uh, either about me or about my client or about the charges just because they surrounded domestic violence. That's interesting that you, you, you indicated that a lot of people were removed for cause I think one of the challenges people face in domestic violence cases is that because it's such a serious category and topic to people that oftentimes I think sometimes jury, jurors or potential jurors do what they can to get on the jury to try to ensure that quote unquote justice is brought, which could be, you know, really prejudicial to our clients, especially if they have, you know, this appearance that they can be fair and impartial, but in reality, they really just want to ensure to in what their minds is justice being sought. Did you find yourself having to use the majority of your uh, preemptory challenges as well? I did. Um, so there were multiple people that were removed for cause. Um, but after that, obviously, I questioned people. Um, the prosecutor questioned people. And the judge even asked some follow-up questions because sometimes there's people that are, I guess you could say, on the fence about whether or not they could be fair or not. So those are the people where I like to focus my questions. Uh, I'm sure I'm not the only attorney that focuses their questions on those people. But I did because at the end of the day, if someone originally voices that they don't believe that they can be fair and impartial, and then uh, based on the questioning says, well, actually, I think that I can. Uh, that to me is a red flag. And so those are the people that if they are rehabilitated is how we talk about it, uh, that I like to consider whether or not that rehabilitation is going to be something long lasting, or if that's because uh, potentially they're nervous or the judge is asking them a question. And so those are the people that I use my peremptories on. I know myself, if I make a motion to have a potential juror kicked for a cause and the judge and prosecutor disagree with me or maybe one of them disagrees with me and then 
some rehabilitation takes place, I'm almost always using a peremptory challenge to kick that person just because I didn't get the motion for cause to go my way. And I obviously felt some type of way about that. So did I guess the most important thing for any attorney going into, you know, the the opening statements, which we're going to get into next is how did your gut feel at the end of that jury selection? Was it happy or, or was it not so great? So good. Um, the beginning of it, I did not feel so good. Um, when you start talking about domestic violence and people are giving you dirty looks as you're asking them questions, um, it's troubling. It's a huge hurdle to get over, to get them to realize that I'm not going to be advocating for domestic violence to be okay. That's not what I believe. That's not what I would advocate for. Um, but by the end of it, thankfully, I had enough time to conduct what I believe was a thorough voir dire. I felt that people were starting to come around and understand that just because the charges are associated with domestic violence doesn't mean that that's actually what took place here. Exactly. I, what a great transition. Uh, I know I'm pumped. I'm super excited. I feel like we just actually got done conducting our voir dire, and I know I'm ready to hear about these opening statements. So why don't you, for the members of our jury, Go ahead and, and potentially give the members of the jury, you know, maybe a small sample, a snippet of the opening, or, you know, just really give us some of the facts that you were really trying to highlight as you navigated your way through this jury trial. Of course. So I think it's important to always link what you discuss in voir dire to your opening statement. And so uh, really, that's what I tried to do in this case. Now, this case was unique because the person making the accusations was nowhere to be found. Um, Prosecutor couldn't find her, and she was not going to be present for trial. And so I think that changed a lot of the case uh, because even before Vaudir, we had motions in limine where the judge ruled on what evidence could and could not come out. And one of the stronger tools we have on the defense side is the right to confront and cross-examine your accusers. And in this case, one of the accusers wasn't going to be present. And so my opening statement was limited because I wasn't sure exactly at that moment, based on that witness not being available or not coming to trial, uh, what I was going to say or how the evidence was going to come out. Uh, so mine was short as far as I instructed the jury to listen to the evidence and not be convinced one way or the other based only on the charges and hear what actually happened. It's fair to say that you didn't have a lot of favorable facts that you could necessarily work and highlight to show how you were going to navigate through the case, but more so the aspect of the law and the burden and holes uh, of things that need to make sense for the case to be complete, right? Exactly. Um, I, I would say that my strongest, strongest fact in this case was who started the contact, who started the initial, I guess, violence, if you would call it that. Um, and so I highlighted what my understanding of what the evidence would be is that the complaining witness or the victim uh, was the person that initially made contact. Uh, that was my theme for the trial and that was my goal for the trial. And so that's what I started with in my opening statement to really uh, set the floor as to where we were coming from with our defense. Now, you said something that really interesting that relates to that then, because, you know, 
you want to highlight essentially some of the conduct of what ultimately is the person who is now not even there. And I could see how, at least on its face or initially, that seems like that would be really favorable to you because, as you mentioned, without the right to confront that individual, a lot of what that individual said and reported would become inadmissible. But when you said that to me just now out loud, I thought that in some regard, it could also be really detrimental because now you're not able to really elicit some of the why, right? I think so oftentimes in domestic violence cases, if you're able to kind of give a reasoning or an alternative as to why the police were actually called, then you have a really good chance of, you know, providing that reasonable alternative or creating that reasonable doubt. Did you find yourself being able to still make that argument or answer that question when you didn't have the victim in this case? I would say no. And so I prepped this trial basically twice because I prepped it um, as if the victim were going to be there or if the victim were not going to be there. Like I said, I was unable to find her or have her interviewed prior to trial. And so my suspicion was that she was not going to appear. But at the same time, I have a job to do. And so if she were going to appear, I needed to be ready to do that. Now, in this case, I think that it actually would have been helpful for my case if she would have appeared. The reason being, when she made these accusations, she was extremely intoxicated. You can see it on body-worn camera. Um, You could hear it in phone calls. She was very, very drunk. And so talking about the accusations and their validity when someone is coming from that perspective draws into question their veracity. Absolutely. Again, and that sounds like there's even more to go into as to the why, you know, police were maybe called. Was she trying to, you know, you always hate to potentially victim bash and, and I don't necessarily think you're doing that when you're asking questions that need to be scrutinized you know I have had certain cases where without a doubt the police were called and domestic violence was alleged and it was 100% to serve as some kind of distraction between some kind of relationship dispute that was happening maybe some kind of personal uh, mishap that was happening but you know there was definitely something else going on you know so i want to move slowly into the direct examination or the people's case in chief can you do me a favor and lay out for the members of the jury kind of a a synopsis of the facts so before we get into your cross examinations the members of the jury have an idea as to what was the totality of the story that you were uh, attacking as it was presented to the members of the jury in in your courtroom Of course. So the accusations in this case were unclear. Um, Like I said, the person that was making them was heavily intoxicated at the time. And so the accusations weren't step one, step two, step three. It was a little bit of this happened, a little bit of that happened. And it was really hard to figure out what actually happened. Naturally, domestic violence cases are crimes of seclusion. And so I would say a majority of the time, The investigation and trying to determine what happened is made by police and by prosecutors after the fact, because oftentimes there's no eyewitness third parties in these types of cases. It's a lot of uh, he said versus she said stuff. Exactly. Almost every time. 
And so in this case, there was really two sides to the story. There was the side that the victim was making, and then there was the side that um, my client made to the police when they showed up later and investigated the case. So originally, and the way that it was charged with these six counts, the complaining witness said that there was an argument that escalated and turned violent. And the violence involved uh, my client putting both of his hands around this person's neck and choking her to the ground for five or 10 seconds, and then also hitting her with an item. That was the first three counts. Now, in the calls to law enforcement, there was an allegation that the almost identical circumstances happened again later in the day. And so that's why they had charged it six counts, but really three counts twice. Understood. So basically the more or less, and that's why exactly why in the beginning you had introduced this case as a strangulation case, because the premise was there was some kind of domestic dispute and more or less at some point in time, your client was accused of putting his hands around his girlfriend's neck and taking her to the ground with some other additional conduct. Correct. Exactly. And the strangulation is obviously the lead charges. That's where count one and count two and count four and count five all came from. The most serious crimes that were alleged in this case, um, because uh, I would like to think that it's common knowledge that strangulation is serious. Very. Um, if someone can't breathe, it can obviously lead to a lot of problems and very serious problems. And so it was a serious case. Um, but the difficulty was getting to what actually happened as opposed to what a very heavily intoxicated person piece by piece tried to explain happened. Getting into the weeds and being able to break down the testimony to assess whether or not a strangulation actually did occur. Exactly. And if it did occur, under what circumstances did it occur? Was it provoked? Meaning was someone acting in self-defense? by strangling someone else or not. And that's kind of what the whole case turned into of what happened prior to someone's hands being on someone else's neck. Right. Because just because that was the end result there, like you said, there very well could have been a justification. So I kind of want to explore that a little more. You know, you had mentioned that the prosecution was unable to have the victim show up and testify at court. What, how would you say that the prosecution then was able to navigate through their case in chief without the victim? So this is not legal advice, but I think as part of the podcast, the prosecution moved forward on my client's statements almost alone. Obviously, they had police officers that were there that investigated, but my client decided to make a statement uh, to the police when they arrived to investigate. And so when the person making the allegations of two occurrences of strangulation wasn't there, what they did have is statements by my client as to what happened. Yeah, well, actually, that's a really good point to take a moment and, and highlight that in at least our jurisdiction, I think it's pretty fair to say in most jurisdictions, the reason a client statement could be so damning for any defense is because the prosecution have the ability to overcome what's called and no, popularly known as the hearsay objection. So even though your client statement may have been made outside of court, 
the prosecution is able to still make offer that statement for its truth to the members of the jury in a limited fashion as well during their case in chiefs. And the only way that a client is able to really rebut the way in which their statement was used by the prosecution is to ultimately testify during the case defense case in chief. So it's a prosecutors often really like to pick and parcel the statements because if they're able to use the statements in a negative light, it is also it's obviously very damning evidence. And again, the only way to rehabilitate from that is to have the client testify, which then subjects them to God knows what. Exactly. And you never know how they're going to come across when they testify. Um, And speaking with jurors after trials, it is surprising to me often what they hang their hat on, what they do or do not like about client when they're on the stand, uh, what they do or do not like about the way that they answer questions, or even the way that I interact with them as their attorney. Uh, I've gotten feedback that that is an important fact. Uh, for the jury as to how the client feels when or appears when they're testifying. Um, And so statements that are made are, in my experience, and the number of trials that I've had, are are always used against defendants or people that are accused of crimes. And it's unfortunate because uh, our rights are We don't have to talk to police. We don't have to make statements to police. We don't have to make statements to anyone when we're being investigated for a crime. But oftentimes people do. And so those statements can be very damning. Uh, I have yet to have a case where those statements assist someone in their own defense. No matter what is said, it, it almost always can be turned against you especially when the police are able to lie and set you up. And like we said, the prosecution are able to pick and parcel, you know, portions of that statement. So, you know, that that's a great segue again. So now is my favorite part of the trial. We're into the cross-examination portion for you. You get up, you're the star. How do you combat this case in chief that has no victim where they pretty much say, we got the guy because we have his own statements you know, what do you do to combat that? Uh, so love cross-examination. Um, in this case, I think it was impactful, uh, but I wouldn't say it made or broke the case. Um, the reason being they didn't have the complaining witness or victim. If the complaining witness or victim was there, that cross-examination would have made or break the case. But instead, we had police officers testifying. So the only cross-examination that I got to do was uh, crossing these police officers about what happened after the fact. And so a lot of my cross-examination was to highlight the fact that they were just repeating what was said to them. They weren't there. They didn't witness what happened. They were trying to get to the bottom of it, but they didn't really know. They could only play with the cards that they were dealt. And so the cross-examination focused on the fact that they weren't there at the time that it happened, the fact that two calls went out and the calls were piece by piece and there were more pieces missing than there were pieces to use. 
And so they had to do the best that they can based on the information that they were provided. But I still like to cross them on the fact that they don't know those two individuals. They had no prior interactions with those two individuals and they had no prior knowledge of the ins and outs of their relationship, what happened, who was aggressive, who was not aggressive on that time or any other. And so that's where I really focused my cross-examination. I know oftentimes the police, when they're writing a police report and they're taking statements, they're obviously doing that to then generate it from the point of view of themselves and the victims. And so in this case, since that was such a crucial component of it, during your cross-examination, how are you able to highlight your client's side of the story through these officers and the way in which they reported the situation? Of course. Well, I think that you're right in that they're coming at it from a perspective also. They have a limited amount, but they have some information when they arrive on scene. The information that they had in this case was that a man had strangled a woman for five to 10 seconds and taken her to the ground while he was doing it. So uh, they're coming in with that understanding or that bias. And so when they start investigating the situation, almost immediately upon arrival, my client is treated like the aggressor. Because when the accusations are made, oftentimes in these cases or in other cases, the person making the accusations isn't always the most forthcoming about any wrongdoing that they've committed. And so what came out at trial was that this complaining witness had punched my client prior to any strangulation. But when the police officers arrived, the information that they had is that my client had snapped essentially and put two hands around a woman's neck and taken her to the ground. And so crossing these officers was really a goal of it was to focus on the fact that they were working off of the information that they had, but if the information that they had was wrong, then the end result of their investigation was also wrong. And in this case, that was my client being arrested and charged with strangulation. Do you feel ultimately at the end of the cross-examinations, you were able to win the battles? I do. Um, So I think that the crosses went well. And the fact that I got out that they had that limited information when they were investigating, when they made an arrest, they admitted to me that they weren't there. They didn't witness what happened. They didn't know of any earlier violence against my client. They also weren't aware that the complaining witness had attacked my client and been arrested for it in the past. And so when they're coming in with this idea that my client was choking someone, it's very different than this complaining witness having acted violently in the past against my client, acted violently, and my client defended himself. And so I think that's really where the cross-examination that I had brought out the facts that I wanted. Now, it also brought out my client's statement. And that was not helpful in some sense, but it did explain that he had been punched and attacked before he did anything. 
And so my case was then focused on the domestic violence self-defense aspects. And both of those charges have self-defense as an element. And self-defense is also uh, an area of the law where there's an independent jury instruction, where if someone is acting in self-defense, then their actions can be justified. And there's a lot of limits on that, but that was the general idea as to what I was going for in this cross. And I think it came out well. That there are moments and situations where we may disagree with, or we may not have acted in that same or similar way, but that does allow for justification for force to be used if it's being used upon you, right? Exactly. And that's a big part of it too. And that is something that I focused on in uh, a bit in my voir dire is it's important for jurors not to put themselves in anyone's shoes and not to put themselves, well, I would have done this. I would never defend myself physically against a woman. I just wouldn't do it. And while I can certainly understand that, that's not what the law says. The law says that you're allowed to defend yourself. And so that's what I was shooting towards in voir dire so that I could follow up on it in the cross-examination. My last kind of question into the whole prosecution's case in chief is that in mo in many cases, body-worn camera footage is really detrimental to our case because it introduces an element of emotion that you know sometimes words alone are unable to, I guess, develop. Now, it sounds like you had success in your motions in Lemonade and that you were allowed to keep a lot of this confrontational evidence out. But were they able to get in any body-worn camera footage that showed the alleged victim or that you felt was like really detrimental to your case? Uh, yes, they got in some media um, that was deemed to be admissible to Spike Crawford uh, when there were allegations that my client had, had weapons on him. Um, there was no allegation that the weapons were ever used, but the allegation, and, and think what you want about the validity of this allegation, but the allegation was that my client had some gigantic number of knives on his person. So that portion came in, which was obviously a hurdle that I had to jump and had to argue around um, because it can be scary. And I understand that it can be scary for jurors to hear that. But at the end of the day, there was no allegation that a weapon was used in this case. And so just the allegation that there may or may not have been a weapon or many weapons on him really wasn't relevant. And that's what I argued, but uh, that evidence did come in. Definitely a tactic to pull up the emotions of the jurors, but you know, hopefully we'll hear about how you were able to overcome that. So it sounds like the prosecution completed their case in chief. They were able to, you know, introduce some police testimony and their body worn camera, and you felt good about your crosses. Um, when the when the people ultimately rest at that stage of the trial, you know, how did you feel? Uh, at that stage of the trial, I felt great. Um, the state of the evidence was that the complaining witness or victim had struck my client. And in response to that, uh, my client grabbed her by the neck and took her to the ground. Legally, 
the way that I saw that is self-defense, very clear cut. So I argued for the judge to take the case from the jury at that halfway point and acquit my client. Now, the judge thought about it for a while. Uh, I remember arguing it to him and there was a long moment of silence. But that silence turned out that he only dismissed half of the charges. Now, the complaining witness had made allegations of those circumstances occurring twice without admitting to uh, her wrongdoing in punching my client. But there was evidence that at one point, my client's hands were around the neck of this victim or complaining witness, but not twice. So the judge didn't take that decision from the jury, but he did take the decision from the jury as to the second allegation that at this point was completely unsubstantiated by the evidence. There was no evidence that there were two instances of violence between these two people uh, because those allegations had been excluded because this witness didn't show up. So the judge dismissed three counts, two of the strangulation counts, and then also a battery count and said that we should proceed on then the three counts, two still being strangulation related and one being battery. Wow, Tyler, what a what a fantastic result yeah, to have a, a judgment granted like that midway through trial where, you know, just simply put, you were able to demonstrate just through your cross examination skills that there was a lack of sufficiency in the evidence. You know, you deserve a real big kudos for that and definitely seems like you took a big chunk out of the hurdle in which you were facing as it went to closing argument. You know, I think that's a really great time for us to take just a small recess in the podcast. And again, I just want to truly thank each and every listener who has, you know, become part of the community, who has followed and subscribed and listened to our episodes. You know, this episode's being recorded in middle of April of 2021. We just hit our 750th download, and I would have never imagined that we would have gotten this far. And so I'm just super grateful for all my guests and for all my listeners. And I would just encourage anyone and everyone that if you want to be a guest on the podcast, or if you have any comments or feedbacks as to how I can improve the show, please, please reach out to me, send me an email at lhursty at members of the jury pod.com. Or you can find me on social media at members of the jury, send me a DM. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to engage with you. I'd love to have you on as a guest. A lot of our messages are important and more of America needs to hear them because we always hear about injustices and this show is all about celebrating justices that happen every single day on the front line by Freedom Fighters who just absolutely love this um, and, and standing up for our rights. And so we just got halfway through this trial and that was a perfect demonstration of all of that. And so you know, we're here with Deputy Public Defender Tyler. He's talking to us about a strangulation case. We just finished the first half of the trial, and we're about to resume now. We are going to come back from our intermission. Uh, the prosecution has just rested. Uh, Tyler has successfully argued a dismissal of half of the charges, including some strangulation and battery dismissals. And we're going to get into now what's called the defense case in chief. So, Tyler, was there anything that was presented in this case on behalf of the defense? Uh, there was not. I was, I was frustrated 
Uh, I thought the entire case should have been dismissed based on the arguments that I made at the halfway point. So when the judge didn't dismiss it, although the jury didn't get to hear evidence as to why, or even the arguments I made as to why it should be dismissed, um, I was still frustrated. I was concerned about well, what the judge thought about the case, um, because if there was a conviction, the judge would be responsible for sentencing at the end. And so I was trying to keep my client out of custody. Uh, and then it comes the decision of whether or not my client should testify. And that's a decision that is entirely theirs. I advise them. I tell them what I think is best. Um, but I also tell them that at the end of the day, it's their choice. They can do absolutely whatever they want. And I will support them in that decision. They want to get on the stand and tell their side of the story to the jury. Uh, I'm going to help them do that. If they don't want to, then they won't. And so that's how I present it. And in this case, uh, my client did not want to testify. And so he did not take the stand, which was consistent with what I thought was in his best interest. But again, the choice was his. Uh, so based on that, we rested our case. I didn't call any witnesses. Uh, I had luck during motions in lemonade to exclude uh, what's known as a domestic violence expert in air quotes, uh, because that is a tactic that prosecutors sometimes employ to have law enforcement officers come in and talk about domestic violence. And the reason I wanted this person excluded in this case is there was no complaining witness to talk about the relationship or the involvement in what had happened, whether or not there was prior abuse, who was the perpetrator of that abuse, really what the dynamic was. And in my experience, these uh, law enforcement officers that come in and talk about domestic violence have not interviewed the complaining witness or victim, have not interviewed my client, uh, but really talk about generalizations of domestic violence. And as we knew from voir dire, that can be really harmful and very prejudicial to a client to hear uh, what generally happens in traditional domestic violence relationships, what the cycle of violence is, all of those things, when in this case, it didn't apply. And so I didn't need to call a witness to rebut that or talk about the relationship between my client and this complaining witness or victim. And since my client chose not to testify, I rested my case. That is such such a huge win to be able to exclude a domestic violence expert because you're totally right. You're totally right that that is a tactic that the prosecutors employ to really kind of just pull on the emotional strings of the jury to remind them how concerning, severe, and devastating domestic violence cases are and can be. And none of us disagree with that. But if they don't have like a specific and personal knowledge as to the events in this case or in the relationship that's being discussed, then do they really have a purpose to testify? I mean, I know it, it's very common for defense attorneys to challenge that generalization expertise because someone is really just deemed an expert when they're able to provide you knowledge that you do not have or that's above the common means of a person. And 
in 2021, I, I think it's fair to say that America realizes that domestic violence is an issue, that the conduct that falls under that umbrella is un- the conduct that falls under that umbrella is serious and needs to be taken seriously. And so no one is minimizing that, no one is condoning that, and we don't need to have in my opinion some of these common notions explained by an AKA expert just to give the state this false sense of credibility. Absolutely agree with you. Um, those those witnesses are tough because what they talk about sounds terrible. But the difficulty is that's not always the situation before the jury. And so it's difficult then after they've heard that on direct examination to explain that, no, actually, what's going on in this situation is much different. And so that's a tough hurdle to jump during trial when those witnesses are permitted to testify and talk about the things that they've seen in other relationships as far as domestic violence. Very well put. Very well put. Well, Tyler, it's come to that time. The prosecution has rest. The defense has rest. I guess before we really get into the closing arguments, were there anything about the jury instructions that you know were out of the ordinary or argumentative? A certain instruction that you wanted to have in or to keep out? Yeah, the only special instruction, and I wouldn't even call it special, the only instruction that I requested was a self-defense instruction. There was some discussion about it because self-defense is actually an element of the two strangulation crimes. So the prosecutor is required to prove that that conduct was not done in self-defense. But I think understanding the legal definition of self-defense is quite different. And so that's what the jury instruction of self-defense gives. And that's what I argued for. And the judge agreed because there was evidence of the accuser in this case, complaining witness or victim, having acted violently first. And so the jury needed to be able to read the law as to what that then allows a person to do only in response. And the law is very, very specific about self-defense. What you can and can't do is a very, very fine line. And in this case, what I argued to the judge to include that instruction is that what my client did in response fit the definition of self-defense. And the judge agreed and he provided that instruction. Uh, And then we closed and we argued the case to the jury. That, that's such a nuanced point that you just highlighted, but legally has such a big impact. Like it's totally one thing and it's part of the prosecution's burden to prove how the conduct that was engaged in was not in self-defense, right? That is a part of the established crime that this individual was charged with. And so that is inherent in the charges that they have to prove that it was not. But in addition to that, you were able to get the fr- affirmative defense instruction that says, "This is o- these are certain situations in, with- in which this is okay. So let's get into some of your closing arguments. We know that the prosecutor shouldn't argue that, you know, we basically we presented police who told you the victim said, this is what happened. What were you able to argue and how were you able to use that jury instructions to your benefit in your closing argument? So 
the, I would say, focus of my closing argument was, where is this person? Where is this complaining witness? Where is this victim? Where is this accuser? If someone is being charged and uh, you're not allowed to discuss punishment, so I didn't. But if someone is being accused of what is a very, very serious crime in strangulation, wouldn't it be beneficial to hear from the person that there and pointing at the government is saying was the victim of that crime? Isn't that the best evidence as to what happened? Isn't that the best way for the jury to determine what happened is hearing from that person and what they experienced and what happened. And also, wouldn't they have wanted to hear about this punch that this person perpetrated against my client before any contact from my client happened against her? Wouldn't they want to see her responses to my questions that she failed to mention to the police and law enforcement when she originally called them? I think that I argued that there's huge value in the jury being able to see her in person on the stand explain that. Why didn't she tell them? Why didn't she tell them when they were investigating? She didn't. And why isn't she here now to explain it to you? And so that's what I focused on. Then I also focused on my client and his response, and specifically that self-defense instruction. Now, this was a case where there was history. And the history did not surround my client being the perpetrator. And so the self-defense instruction allows argument as to what the person that is going to engage in self-defense believes at the time they're going to engage in it. So what did my client believe may, would, could, was likely to happen when he was punched by this person? And that then justifies the response that he can take to that action. And so in this case, his response, although it may seem and sound violent, serious, was it justified that he acted to that level, to that extent? And that's what I argued. That's what I left the jury with. That's very powerful. So you submit the, you submit the facts and the evidence and the law to the members of the jury. You ask them that during their process of deliberation that they review all of the evidence and take their time and read the law and evaluate it before they ultimately come back with that verdict. Do you recall how long the jury was out pending their verdict in this case? Uh, they were out for, I'd say, at least a full day. I can't recall exactly what time of day we finished this trial and the jury took the case, um, but they had questions, so they deliberated for a while. They wanted to hear some playback of testimony. They wanted to watch videos that were submitted. They were critical of the evidence, which I was thankful for, because the charges on their face are bad. But the facts that came out and the facts that didn't come out from that complaining witness 
were huge. And so I'm glad that they took the time to focus and discuss and talk about what was presented to them and how they felt about it. That's amazing. You know, for a jury to be able to take the time, not make any rush to judgments, put in notes, ask to hear playbacks, review the evidence. I think that's what any lawyer ultimately desires from any of their jury. And then if they know that they're they're doing those things, there's more confidence in the verdict that they ultimately render, whether it's positive or negative. If we know that they've asked a couple questions to the judge, that they've asked to hear, hear multiple playbacks or view certain pieces of evidence, you know at least they're considering the evidence. And I feel more comfortable in those cases when a verdict is rendered than when it's happened super fast, there were no notes, no playbacks. So I could only imagine, you know, the emotional roller coaster that you went through as you, you know, had at least a day to wait, kept getting the notifications of the callbacks and notes. But why don't you go ahead and inform our members of the jury, ultimately, what was the verdict rendered in this case? We know that the case started with six counts. You were able to success successfully get three of them dismissed at the midway point. What was the ultimately final verdict when it was submitted by the jury in this case? So the jury came back not guilty on count one. Let's go! Woo! Not guilty on count two. Let's go! They did find uh, my client to be guilty of what's called a lesser included offense of count one. So instead of assault by means likely to produce great bodily injury, it was a simple assault. Uh, they also found him guilty of a battery, which is uh, more or less an unwanted touching of another person. Uh, but the win, and I do consider this case a win, is my client walked out of the courtroom that day without custody. Uh, his concern uh, from the beginning was related to whether or not this case would involve a custodial term, a deprivation of his liberty, and I'm happy to say that it did not, and he walked out of the courtroom that day. Tyler, that is a fantastic story and, and such a good ending that's completes the circle you know we talked about earlier in this episode how when someone goes to trial they go for one of two reasons or both that one there are factual issues factual concerns tribal issues that really need to be questioned and presented before members of the jury and we obviously had that demonstrated here by you know the dismissal at the halfway point numerous not guilty verdicts returned by the members of the jury and that the second reason is because sometimes there's a disagreement as to how the case should ultimately resolve. And in he, this case, it sounded like, you know, given all the facts and the circumstances, the district attorney's office was set on custody. And, and despite getting a conviction, after hearing all of the facts, the judge disagreed. And, and so it sounds like you won both on the factual front and as to the the sentencing part. And so, you know, there's definitely justice that can come out of convictions. And there's definitely justice that can come out of non-convictions. And so that is a job well done, Tyler. And that's such an amazing story. You know, the very last question we ask on the members of the jury, and a lot of what we just talked about goes to this heart, is what is the importance of that ability and that right to take a matter to the box? I think 
obviously there's a constitutional importance. But I think even more than that, the importance of being able to challenge is what separates us as what I believe to be a growing society. Uh, I'm sure you've heard the stories. I hope some of your listeners have heard the stories of, you know, how people that were accused of witches used to be treated. Thankfully, we are not in that type of society. Baseless accusations have no place in our society. They have to be justified with the evidence. And the way that, at least here, we've determined uh, the way to go about showing that evidence is by bringing in 12 people of the community to determine what happened. Is there a base to these accusations or are they baseless? And that's the importance of taking it to the docs. Well, members of the jury, that's our show and I rest my case. Be sure to come back next episode as we take another matter to the box. If you're a fan of the show, go ahead and subscribe. You can also find us on social media at members of the jury. If you want to be a guest or have any feedback, be sure to email us at lhursty at membersofthejurypod.com. The information in this podcast is provided as general reference work as a public service. The audience is advised to check for changes to current laws and to consult with a qualified attorney on any legal issue. The use of this material does not create an attorney-client privilege in any fashion with the podcast, the host, or the guest. This information is for educational purposes only, and no one affiliated with the podcast may be held liable for any decision made based on this information.